Mino Lion Media presents Corner Table Talk. Welcome to Corner Table Talk. I'm your host, Brad Johnson. Here we explore subjects related to food plus drink plus culture. For me, having grown up in the hospitality industry, I've lived at the intersection of food, drink, and culture since the mid-1970s. The view is a long one with many players, places, and experiences. A formative impression for me in the early 80s was the first time I wandered into Keith McNally's Odeon. I was taken by the room, and I soon became an avid admirer of his work and a patron at all of his places, including the one closest to home for me, Cafe Luxembourg on the Upper West Side. My guest today, Preston Clark, is the son of the late, great Patrick Clark, one of the true pioneers of American cooking. His obituary in the New York Times stated, quote, he was a chef who helped lead a generation of Americans to embrace a new style of casual but sophisticated French cooking in the early 1980s, and then helped lead them back to the ingredients and preparations of their own country, end quote. Patrick was also the opening chef at the Odeon, which in 2020 celebrated its 40th year in business. And to my knowledge, I, I looked this. I looked into this. I couldn't find another African American chef that had been reviewed by the New York Times prior. And I think Brian Miller reviewed um, Patrick in the Odeon when he was there. So, following in the footsteps of a father whose impact is as lasting as Patrick Clark's could be challenging. Well, Preston has been making a name for himself for some time. A third-generation chef, Preston currently oversees the kitchens of Lure Fish Bar in New York City, Miami, and Chicago. I've never met Preston, so a special shout-out and thank you to publicist extraordinaire Valerie Wilson, who brought Patrick to my attention and uh, helped coordinate uh, him joining me for the podcast today. So thank you so much, Val. It's uh, really, really nice of you to do this. So preparing for today, I read a few of Patrick's interviews, and there's little doubt he knows his way around the kitchen. But he also exudes a kind of self-assured leadership that is only gained by having put in the work. I'm excited to have a chance to speak with Preston. Preston, nice to meet you, man, and welcome to, uh, to Corner Table Talk. Thank you so much for having me. I, it's, um, it's a real honor to be here. I really appreciate it. Thank you very much. Oh, pleasure, man. Um, well, we, we kick things off with my short order questions. I don't have to explain that to a chef. You know what that means. These are easy ones for you. So tell me, man, what is in heavy rotation on your playlist? What are you listening to these days? Heavy rotation on my playlist. Oh, boy, I'm doing a lot of Stevie Wonder these days. Uh, a lot of Drake, a lot of Kendrick Lamar, a lot of Mozart, <laughs> uh, things like that. That's, that's, that's probably, that's probably the, the most that are pretty much in rotation. A lot of Kendrick Lamar. Can't knock those those players. How about in the kitchen? Do you allow uh, music while you're working or is, do you prefer silence and only your voice to be heard? I do. I do. I do. I do allow music when we're working. Um, it's kind of uh, it's funny because you know in the kitchens that I grew that I came up in, uh, there was usually no music uh, allowed. Um, and then uh, as I started to get you know as a, as my per, my career progressed on, as became you know a sous chef, and I was working in different kitchens. Um, a lot of my friends started to have restaurants, and uh, I can remember one in, in specific. It was a restaurant called Taylor. A friend of mine, chef friend of mine named uh, Sam Mason, a pastry chef, and he had uh, notorious Big playing in the kitchen. I was like, you have music in the kitchen, so we definitely play some music in the kitchen. Uh, a lot of the times it's uh, cumbia, sometimes it's salsa, <laughs> but uh, we definitely we definitely uh, have a little bit of music in the kitchen. I think it just helps the truce to, to uh, you know, helps them to motivate to get done what they get done. Yeah, man. Yeah. I've worked with some chefs that only want their voice heard in the kitchen, but uh, it, it's nice when there's a little vibe and a little music playing. Yeah, I like, it's usually just my voice that you hear, but I, 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 I never like to stop the music. <laughs> <laughs> no. What is uh, what's your footwear of choice? What do you wear at work on your feet? Uh, Birkenstock, the Birkenstock Crocs. Bought uh, I bought my first pair in 1999 in Chicago, uh, just uh, prior to uh, joining the Charlie Trotter's Kitchen, and I've uh, never worn a different shoe. Comfort, pure comfort. Pure comfort. You have the it's uh, the Birkenstock uh, 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 clog with uh, Dr. Scholl's uh, insole, like walking on a cloud. <laughs> Save the back and the knees, right? Absolutely. All right, so favorite New York City place for an after-work cocktail or bite to eat? Where do you like to go after work, man, just to 
Joe. Favorite New York City place for an after work cocktail? Uh, I would have to say my favorite place for an after work cocktail is a bar called Dante's. It's in Soho. Actually, it's in Noho. It's in uh, just north of uh, Houston, not too far from the restaurant. And uh, they make, um, I think, some of the best cocktails in the world. Dante's. Is it a newer bar or has it been around for a while? Uh, it's been around for a little while. It's been around for a while. It's uh, they and they have a they have a night. They have a great food menu there too. But the cocktails, the bartenders, the service is uh, unbelievable. All right. Well, we got a little insider tip there. I like that. Dante's. All right. I'm writing that down. <laughs> All right, Steph. So tell me, vacation spot you're looking forward to traveling to, assuming that you do take vacations. Oh boy. Yeah, it's been a while since I took vacation. I um I've definitely got out of the uh I definitely got out of the where I used to, you know, be a martyr and never ever take vacations, but now I'm really trying to make sure I take the time for myself because I make sure I, I perform much better when you have it when you take that time for yourself and you get a little chance to rest. Uh, I really enjoy the islands. I went to uh, Barbados a couple of years ago and I uh, had the time of my life. Yeah, Barbados is is spectacular. It's a beautiful beach, uh, beautiful food, beautiful people, beautiful culture. I had great company, and uh, I'm looking to re- I'm looking to return I'm looking to return there. I had a, I had a blast there. Yeah, Barbados for sure, but definitely the beach, the islands. I'm definitely a beach guy. I like to uh, I like the tropics. I like the hot weather, the sands, uh, specifically for vacation. That's it really makes me feel. I don't feel like I'm on vacation if I'm not looking at a palm tree. <laughs> yeah, man, I, I love that. All right, hard question for you here, but true test. Celery or no celery in your lobster roll? In my lobster roll? I like celery. I like I like to use a little bit of celery salt, but no celery. No celery for me. Yeah, no celery for me. I like uh, I prefer the I pre- I almost prefer I almost prefer the 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 just the style with with uh you know, with really just warm hot melted butter, but uh, when you're doing the when you're doing the New England style, I mean, I and I see I know the, I know the debate you're talking about. <laughs> but I you know, if I had it really had it my way, I would go no celery. Thank you. I'm a purist when it comes to lobster roll. A hundred percent. You get the you get the butter on that brioche bun. You grill it up. It's uh, there's there's nothing better. Yeah, I'm used to the big thick chunks of lobster, some white pepper, some uh, buttered you know brioche bun, man, and, and good to go. You know, that's what that. <laughs> yeah, unbeatable combination. So yeah. All right, past who past or present would you most like to host at an intimate dinner party? And if you're doing the cooking, what are you making? Uh, I like to go back to, I like to, I always like to take this question and take it back to my father. Cause I just, I would love to get, I'd love to be able to spend a little bit more time. Um, my father passed away when I was 16 and I feel like, uh, you know, I would not be the person that I am, uh, without my parents and without, you know, without that guidance. And I would love to just have a couple, a few more conversations. So I would love to, I would love to be able to cook, you know, to, to, uh, to, to be able to cook that dinner and just to kind of hammer and see, uh, see, uh, what he thinks about uh, my cooking as I've, uh, as I've progressed. <laughs> what are you going to make him? Uh, probably some sort of a probably some sort of a whole fish. It would probably I would probably do all fish. Maybe not all fish, but I would, it would be pretty like a heavy fish, heavy seafood, um, heavy seafood menu. Start with like a crudo, move into some sort of a whole roasted fish with uh, some sort of seasonal vegetables, and then maybe finish with the meat. Finish with uh, maybe a game and maybe a meat. Nice slice, nice slice New York strip, nice sauce over the top. <laughs> that's that's a dinner I would really wish that you could have, man. I'm sure he would be. Uh, it must be extremely proud of you uh, up in the up in the heavens above. So. All right, let's let's uh, let's dive in here. So, am I correct, Preston? Are you originally from Brooklyn? Yeah, well, I'm born in Brooklyn. So, tell us a little bit about what the Clark household was like growing up. All right, well, we moved. Uh, we oh boy, that's a that's a good question. It's fun to think about. So, we definitely moved around a lot. I'm the oldest of five, and so it was a, a very much a very busy household. And my mother uh, pretty much had a run of the household. It was myself. I have three sisters and a brother. And every time we moved, it seemed like there was another child. So when we moved from New York, we moved to New York, we moved to New Jersey, we had my third sister. Stung, hung around in New Jersey a little bit in North Brunswick, and I had another sister, Brooke. Then we moved to Los Angeles, and that's when my little brother was born. No more chi- no more children after that. <laughs> then we moved to Virginia. We lived in Virginia for a while in the Washington, D.C. area. And then we moved back to New Jersey. That's where I went to high school. And so my house was uh, always very busy. Always very loud, a little bit, a little bit messy sometimes. But uh, everyone had chores on Saturday morning. Everybody had their Saturday morning chores. Was clean the clean the bathroom, clean the baseboards. Everyone had a day of the week that they had to set the table. There was a lot of times where we would help with the cooking. We'd start with you know browning the meat from my mother. 
Uh, it was just a hustle and bustle household. It was uh, it was some of the more memorable times of my life. Uh, very very food centered, very family centered. Lots of love. Church every Sunday, uh, and you'd wait for your my father to get home. We didn't see my father so much. He was always working. He would come home, see him at uh, you know ten o'clock at night, eleven o'clock at night, and then we'd see him on Sunday. Sunday was always a big deal. Sun, Sunday dinner was always a big deal in my house. So we would all gather around the table. My father would cook. You know, if you drew dishes for that week, uh, you know it was usually you were usually pretty upset because my father would come and it felt like he would use every pot and pan in the house. <laughs> and so then you were stuck, uh, you know, helping washing dishes. But it was always a team effort. But it's always uh, always a, very much a family focus, always centered around the family, centered around food. And just, uh, yeah, that's 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 kind of what that's what I remember. It was, it was kind of fun to kind of draw back on these memories. <laughs> During the week was um, was dinner around the table. I know your dad was at work. What, what Was that something that you did as a family every night during the week? Absolutely every night. My mother was a pretty accomplished cook also. She was, uh, they actually, my parents actually met in culinary school. And so she was uh, very, very good. And uh, always dinner, always dinner around the table. Always, uh, always all, all the brothers and sisters. Uh, and then on Sunday was the, was the big dinner when um, my father would come home. And also my, gra- my grandmother, my mother's mother would, would, come, uh, come, would come by many times during the week. You know, I think that's just such a strong bonding time for family. And you learn so much, obviously, table manners, but, you know, how to split up duties and how to talk and sit right at a dinner table. And it just seems like unbelievable. It's really like the time around where you learn, where you learn about your family, your family history, your culture. You talk about current events. You talk about everybody's day, how they're doing in the world. It's, uh, you know, it's unbelievable how much you actually learn. Uh, around the, around the family dinner table, it's it's super super important, and I really try to uh, I really try to impart that in my son, uh, you know, in, in my life now as, as as often as I can. Just you know, being able to share that information and being able to just enjoy each other's company and enjoy the family, and uh, and uh, and be able to you know get the information that you need to uh, be successful as as, as, su- as successful as you possibly can in the world today. But I really think it really starts around that family dinner table. It's a real big deal. I agree, man. How old is your son? Uh, my son is nine years old. Nine years old. Christian is his name. He is uh, he is the, the light of my life. <laughs> <laughs> I bet. So um, obviously food and cooking became a real focal point for you at some point. But what were some of your other interests uh, growing up, man? Uh, music, very much. I played a lot of instruments as, a, as a coming up. I was very fortunate to be uh, introduced to music early. I played, I dabbled in a little bit in the violin, uh, woodwinds. When I was uh, in high school, I played a lot of saxophone. I uh, played the bassoon. And so being able to uh, read and write music was a, a really big, a really big uh, influence. And you know, when I was younger, I thought I might have wanted to go that way. But uh, that, that's not uh, how it ended up happening. My, uh, my, while, while definitely a passion, you know, my, my passion for culinary and cooking and, and, and uh, restaurants and being able to spread joy to people through, through food uh, kind of took hold. And that's uh, what brings me to where, I'm at, where I am today. Music's never not in the background. Uh, I think that, uh, you know, I'm, I'm really, I'm about, I'm about setting the vibe. And I think you can't, it's, it's, music really helps to set the vibe. Even like if we, we were speaking about in the kitchen, it helps to set the vibe. And, uh, you know, I really, I really, I do. It's definitely a second passion of mine. And uh, when I get a chance, it's a little bit, it's, it's harder for me to, to, to be practicing. You know, I, uh, I picked up a guitar when I was about 24 years old. And so I'm able to practice that. I don't really have the time to set up a saxophone and, <laughs> and play. I have a piano in my house, so I play the piano a little bit. But definitely music is another, another definitely a second passion of mine that I really, really enjoy. You're starting to sound like Stevie Wonder, man, playing all of those instruments from <laughs> the violin and the guitar, man. That's uh, that's pretty impressive. So as you mentioned, um, you're from a family of five. And, um, you know, I don't know, obviously, if, if you all went out to restaurants as a family early on, that could be a pretty expensive bill for uh, for seven folks going out. But did did the family go out to eat dinner ever? Uh, yeah, we would we would go to uh, all kinds of restaurants. The last one of the one of the more memorable ones that I can remember was actually uh, Windows in the World was uh, at the top of the World Trade Center. We all went. We all went there. We had a great dinner. And then uh, usually it's kind of funny. We there was I remember my mother kind of, you know, giving us the prep talk of how to make sure that we all behave at the restaurant and, and you know, not to speak, you know, not to speak until spoken to. And we would sit there and I think everyone was very well behaved. And then once we got out of the restaurant, it was like chaos. It was all everybody let loose because, you know, everyone was very well behaved in the restaurant. We would go, uh, we would go. I remember one year we spent uh, Thanksgiving at Tavern on the Green. That was another same situation where everyone was, we got the prep talk. 
everyone was very well behaved. Anytime anybody started to stray a little bit at the table, you you know you'd get the you get the uh, the side eye from my mother, and you straighten up real quick. Uh, but yeah, we would go out we, when we did go out to eat. We would go out to eat as a family, and it was. Uh, Definitely some of the more memorable times uh, of my family when we were younger. Yeah, you know, man, that's, that's such a strong visual. You know, I, I have this image of your dad. I'll, I'll get into it in a minute. I, I met him years ago, but I, I do have this very strong visual of him as a, you know, just managing a family of young children and how important, you know, proper etiquette and public behavior would have been, especially in a restaurant setting. But what what great practice ground, you know, for developing that, that, that kind of skill and, and how to um, move around. Being taught those mannerisms and those, and those, that etiquette, uh, even, you know, especially like going out to a restaurant, but it gets, again, it starts at the, at the, uh, at the dinner table. And I think that you can, it's, 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 at least for me, it's painfully obvious when you don't have that kind of exposure. I remember being almost appalled when I got to, when I first, my first year in culinary school and people like who, you know, at least were claiming that their interest was in culinary and their, and, you know, this is what they decided to do with their life and pay all this money, but they had no idea about any, any kind of dining etiquette or anything. And I guess it's, you know, people come from different backgrounds, so you don't want to shame anybody. It's definitely something that comes from the home. And I, I, I think that's very, very, important yeah and and digging into your your background a little bit your grandfather was also a chef so i'm curious which side of the family and where was the family originally from and how did your grandfather become a chef so uh i know a little bit less about that story his name was melvin he was uh there this is again in brooklyn so they're in brooklyn and um he worked for charlie o's he worked for the four seasons i think that uh at the time he was just you know when he first started he was really just looking for a job and he was able to get you know the job as a, as a dishwasher and then move up and that's how you know that's how he got into that you know working for for you know for that specific group and I think as he started to find success as he got a little bit older and moved around to different restaurants and that's uh, you know was was I believe is the initial inspiration from my father but yeah yeah I know a little bit a little bit less about that I've been trying to explore but there's not there's a little bit a lot of that information is uh, is, is getting starting to get a little bit lost as so some of the people are no longer with us on that side of the family uh, and uh, my my aunt you know she was a very young girl. Uh, and you know, my fa- my father's father passed away very young. Uh, you know, as 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 my he was very young uh, when his father passed away, the same way that I was, right around uh, you know sixteen. And so, so a lot of that, a little a little bit of that information is is it's hard to find. But I know that he used to he definitely was a dishwasher, worked his way up in the Joe Bomb era, working for restaurants like Charlio's and the Four Seasons. And the family is definitely originally from Brooklyn. So it's a real New York story about you know the hard work, dedication, making sure you you know you keep your mouth shut, get to work and uh, you know do what you're asked and then you know being able to seize an opportunity when it presents itself sure man and what a fantastic pedigree man and yeah i'd i'd love to to know more about uh, your grandfather that was a uh, very early on to um have progressed as he did uh with some pretty big names show bomb obviously you know a legendary restaurateur um you know, Preston, I was very close to my dad, who I followed into the restaurant business as a teenager. He had a, a place on the Upper West Side of Manhattan. I started, you know, washing dishes when I was 16 and, you know, fortunately had a business to, you know, to, to um, move into and, and be employed and, and then learn the business from him. And we enjoyed an incredible relationship until he passed in 2007 at 82. Um, As you mentioned, man, you lost your dad at 16. You're the oldest of five kids. And you, I believe if I read this correctly, you had already followed him into the world of professional kitchens um, when you were, I think, about 16, just before he passed. And I'm curious, what, what impact did your dad's passing at 42 have on you and your family, your mom? I mean, what a big responsibility, five kids, and now she's a she's a single mom. It was uh, devastating. So the word it was devastating. We uh, it was definitely um, one, uh, definitely one of the one of the one of the uh, one of the saddest moments. One of the saddest moments I can remember uh, in my life to date. Um, uh, and I think there was a, definitely a little bit of confusion. It was kind of funny because I can look, I can remember my feelings uh, at the time, and you know, and then I, in hindsight, it's different. I remember, uh, I remember uh, being very much uh, like wanting to be representative in the kitchen uh, right after he died. So when people were there, I was making sure that everyone who came to the house was eating, and make sure that everybody was fed, and I made sure that all of the 
food was ready to go. And I would, I remember, you know, helping to lead and rally the cooks who were helping, who were helping prepare the meals. And I was helping to prepare the meals for the funeral and for the wake and things like that. And, but yeah, it was def- definitely, a, definitely a hard time. Uh, definitely a hard time for me. Definitely a hard time for my entire family. Um, the youngest, the youngest of the of the siblings, they, they you know, they their their memories are a little bit because they were very young, six and six and eight. And so their memory, you know, they have, you know, while they remember the sad time, you know, they don't have the, the same clear memory that, you know, like my mother and my myself and uh, my sister, Aaliyah, the, the sisters right uh, under me remember, but uh, definitely devastating, but um, not, not, uh, not completely defeating. Definitely devastating, but not completely defeating. It's a real testament to my family. We're able to, uh, to keep on keeping on and we were able to maintain and <clears throat> we were able to, uh, you know, essentially just keep going forward, keep pushing forward, but also while looking back. Very important. So you look back and you get to get that inspiration and you remember the lessons that you were taught and you were able to take, take, the, take those lessons and apply them and hopefully, you know, eventually be able to apply them and find good success. I think, or at least what I think that my father would deem as, as success. And my mother definitely, you know, my mother's very proud of all of her children. <laughs> You know, I, I listened to a, uh, an interview with you talking about your dad and how much more you learned about him and his influence after he passed and in the years since. And, you know, I have to say to have lost your dad so young, I really admire your ability to keep your life on track and to build a career, one that, you know, I'm sure he would be so proud to see. Um, this quote from you in an interview in Zagat resonated with me about your work ethic. And you said, my father used to say, quote, what you do now sets the precedent for what you can do later, end quote. Very simple, but man, wow, right? So important. Absolutely. 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 And it's, that's, that's one of the models that I live by even to this day. You know, and it's, it's really, it's funny because, you know, it's especially in the culinary, especially in the culinary world, but any world when, you know, when you're in the, in the shadow of your in your parents you don't want to be you don't want to be you don't want to be pigeonholed or labeled as you know that you know oh you're just successful because you're so-and-so's kid or you know and i think you know i think there's a little bit of that that you have to you know that you fight against but uh you know th- there's there's un- undeniable knowledge that ha- has carried me in so many different ways that i am uh, that i'll always be eternally grateful and uh, we'll make sure that i you know that i pass it on to my to my son and then uh, and, and to anybody to anybody who who is really you know looking to better themselves to you know for forward progression for you know for for any type of success whatever that success may be there's many many avenues many roads to success and whatever you define success whatever that success may be I think that if you you know some of these some of these models that you live by what you do now sets the precedent for what you can do later is a really big one and I think if you if you follow that and you keep it in the back of your mind uh, it will prove to be unbelievably helpful undeniably helpful yeah man I, I couldn't agree more you know, I, I I love it when people tell me how much they loved my dad. You know, it really doesn't get old for me. But, you know, does hearing about the reverence that folks have for your father ever get old? Do you feel the pressure to live up to something because he was just such this big presence? No, I, I used to. Not so much not so much anymore as far as a pressure because I feel like I'm able to really, you know, I think that anybody who knows me knows that, you know, while I do come from a, a very, very deep, uh, you know, pedigree of uh, culinary pedigree in New York, New York culinary pedigree, I think anybody who knows me and especially anybody who knows me and also had knew my father can definitely see the difference and I think that uh, they, they, they definitely definitely recognize that uh, while coming from that great pedigree I've definitely been able to um, cut my own chops if, if, if that makes any sense to be able to I've done pretty I've done a lot on my own and so I used to I used to feel that pressure and I used to be like you know and I, I was also I was more afraid of being of being pigeonholed as that you know oh you're only you've only were able to attain this because of who you are not because of what you've done but uh, uh, yeah, no, I, I I love I love hearing people uh, hearing the stories about my father and how how revealed he was. It was it's, it's unbelievable. It's and it's just really testament. It's just a testament exactly to my to my family and and the work that uh, the work that they were able to do, especially during the times. I would say for sure. And anyone who's ever worked or even seen a professional kitchen that is successful work, you don't get handed that because of a last name. So <laughs> you'll get run out of there so fast you won't know what hit you. You know, man, I, I like to think, having been in the, the business for 40 years, um, that especially when it comes to people of color, that, you know, I keep up with who's who. And, you know, I admit, you know, as, as the business has evolved and proliferated to some degree, that, that's gotten a little bit harder to do. But I, I'm almost embarrassed to admit, I didn't I didn't know about you 
And I wonder if the reason may have something to do with it being intentional on your part that you haven't really sought, quote, you know, celebrity chefdom. Is that intentional? Have you been intentionally low-key? It's a good question. <laughs> not, I wouldn't necessarily say it was an intentional, but it was definitely nothing that I was you know, I, I was kind of sought after. You know, I wasn't I wasn't sure if, they, if, if these celebrity chefs were a hundred percent chefs, if that if that makes any sense. I, I was very much one to keep my head down, and I was also very much aware of my very much aware of my of my lineage. And like I said, it was very important for people to realize that I didn't just get uh, I didn't it wasn't just because of who I was, but the, the work that I did. Um, I have I've always been very private I have been a little bit on the private uh, you know the, the, I felt I always felt like the glory would come later if that, if that makes any sense as far as you know the being a celebrity chef you know, it was much more important for me to make sure that I had nailed all the techniques first and I was able to have the knowledge and have the experience and the real deal what you know what it takes to be successful anywhere running a restaurant. It's not so, I don't know if it's so much that I avoided it, but I was just because I know what you mean. Because I've been kind of low key, <laughs> I'm kind of a low key guy. No, clearly, man. I mean, you could you could certainly you know exploit your name a little bit, you know, and and be on Top Chef and be on TV shows, and maybe that that's coming for you if you choose to. But I mean, I, I really take your point that you put the work in. It was much more important. To, it was much more important for me to put to be able to put the work in, and it was much more important for me to have the respect of my peers. I worked, you know, for Jean George Kitchen, or for Jean George for many, many years, about seven years, you know. And it was it was more important. It was always important for me to make sure I had the respect of the, the guys around me, and that I, you know that that my respect was earned, and I was, you know, seen as 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 a as a, as a true culinarian, you know. And I never wanted to. I never wanted to be pigeonholed into. You know, someone who's on TV, but then, you know, you have the, the kitchen guys cooking in the back and they don't know, the, you know, the person who's on TV doesn't know how to cook. I would hear stories like that and I would be like, oh, you know, and I, I think that, uh, like I said, there's many avenues to success. You never want to shame. I don't never want to shame anybody. You know, there's people who are doing what they're doing. Just very happy with, you know, being able to run the restaurants and, and, and being able to write the recipes and speak Spanish. So I'm happy to be able to speak Spanish to the guys and to be able to communicate what it is I'm looking for them to do. You know, and I'm happy to be able to help other people realize their potential. You know, I'm happy to be able to cook meat. I'm happy to be able to cook fish. I'm happy to be able to, you know, vegetables, but like experts in, the, in that cookery and the reasons of why it works. I really believe I'm very strong. I'm very strong feeling about being true to the craft. It shows uh, when you when you can put when you once you put something that we make in your and, and you eat it and you can you can tell <laughs> because it's delicious, you know. And then and then you get that's the that's the real glory that I think that I really like to be able to just be able to bring that joy to anyone and everyone. And that's you know that's the reward. That's the the hard work behind it. And then you reach that reward. And I don't think that there's anything better. Well, much, much respect to you for uh, for taking that approach. And to your point, man, yeah, everybody has their own course and not to um, disparage anyone who's chosen a different one. But I, I really respect that, uh, you know, you rolled up your sleeves and you got busy and, and you know, really, truly followed in your dad's footsteps and in the, in the level of um, you know expertise that, that uh, you've attained. You know, I met your dad in Los Angeles in the early 90s. He was doing an event with my old friend, uh, Chef Joe Randall on the roof at the Lemertage Hotel, Uncle Joe. And Joe was working with me on a restaurant at the time that I had in LA called Georgia. And for those that don't, Joe is a historian, black culinary historian. His contribution is just, you know, endless. He's worked with so many fantastic people and he's really been a champion for the black culinary uh, contribution um, in the U.S. And um, he was a huge help to me at Georgia and working with our team there just to nail the Southern staples that we had on our menu, which, you know, was was essential for our, for our concept. And he also introduced me to some great people like your father and uh, Edna Lewis. Preston, the black culinary conversation has been getting more attention as of late. Obviously, with High on the Hog on Netflix, Dawn Davis now, the editor over at Bon Appetit. You know, there's a lot more conversation in the space. You said you said something, and I'm going to quote you here, that I thought was that was really interesting. And I wanted to get your, your take and, and if you would elaborate on it a little bit. But you said, quote, it was very important for me to always strive to make sure 
that I had the respect of my peers. I wanted to make sure that I was a chef first and then I was a black chef. As a person of color, you have to be better. You have to shine and you have to be able to get out in front and be noticed. But that makes you so much better. I'm not going to say that it starts to fade away, but you're always going to be judged on performance. Once you get to a high performance level, being best is great. So as an executive chef of color and one who's making beautiful food that is not soul food, it's not traditional Southern food and not that you can't do that, but that's not currently what you're doing. How do you view yourself in that conversation? How do I view myself? That's a great question. Thank you for that one. I think I like to view myself as someone who can set an example for what is possible. I like to think that you, as you know, I think that you know, a lot of times appearance is the first thing that human beings are going to judge on. And so a lot in, in this country, you know, people make mental shortcuts on what they view as the black man or the black person or the person of color. And you have to, I think that sometimes, you know, over with so much history, you know, I think within our culture, you get, you almost, you almost kind of get bogged down. Like you think that, you know, that you're almost destined to not have, you know, to not be successful kind of, does that make sense? And I, I, I don't, it's not true. I think that I, 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 I like to view myself as part of that conversation as an example of like what exact what is what is possible and the hard work that goes behind it and that with that hard work you're going to hit tons of obstacles and you're going to hit obstacles and they're gonna, there's going to be nasty racist things that come your way uh, but if you keep your head down and you keep on going then and that that and nail the performance at the end uh, the performance and the results is, is really what you're going to be judged on. And so there's, the obstacles are going to come regardless. They're always going to come. And you're, you're, you're going to have to jump through hoops and you have to do things that you want to, don't want to do. Uh, you, you know, you don't want to do anything that you, you don't want to do anything that you don't want to do. You know, that's, you know, that's completely outlandish. But, you know, there's going to be things where you're like, oh, I should I have to do this. I don't really want to. But if you do it anyways, and I think it's 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 really important that if, if you maintain that that consistency and you keep pushing that eventually you, there's no choice but the breakthrough, and it doesn't matter. And then you're you're, you're not just a, the son of a, you know a famous chef, or you didn't just get the job because you know we we're trying to fill a quota, or we we're just trying to you know and make sure that we may meet our diversity and inclusion goals. You're able to show the results, and then you have the results, that, and no one can take that away from you. And that's where I really that's where I like to view myself as part of that conversation. Someone who can help to set an example of, of exactly what's possible, particularly with the hard work and despite any obstacles that come your way. You know, and, and I, I so admire you, you know, and and having been in the restaurant industry and felt the, the current, um, the, the upstream challenge with trying to impress upon young brothers and sisters to pursue careers in the culinary arts. You know, it, it, we've been slow to adapt to the possibilities in this industry. There was a point in history where we were we were shunned. We were always in the kitchen. So that going back into the kitchen was like, we, oh, we, we don't want to do that. We want to, you know, and, it's, you know, you can understand that, but you can understand that logic, you know, 100%. But I think, that, you know, I think if it's a, really a passion, if you really want to, you know, if that's something that you really have your, your, your sights set on, it's never going to be without the hard work. It's never going to be without the obstacles that are in your way, but it's definitely possible. Um, yeah. And, and it's such an inspiration, man, to, to see you. And, and um, I'm sure you, um, you know, you will, you will definitely inspire a, a whole new generation uh, to follow in your footsteps. So let's let's talk about your current position as the executive chef of Lure's three locations, including Soho, Miami, and uh, I believe Chicago recently opened. I've known John McDonald, the CEO of Mercer Street Hospitality, since Merck Bar. You know, about 25 years, he tells me. Good friends, you guys. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's my man. And, you know, I mean, John's got a, a great eye for design, vibe, and obviously talent uh, to you, sir. Um, so tell me how the opportunity came about, Preston, to work, to work with John. 
Well, uh, it was, I was, uh, I was, uh, I was in between jobs. I, I, I left, um, where was I? I was at John George for a little while. I went to Northern California. I opened up a, a restaurant for Sammy Hagar, Tyler Florence in, uh, in Mill Valley. I came back, uh, to New York and I was working at a restaurant uh, called Resto and the Cannibal. I left there and I was actually, uh, my son was just born. So I was actually at home spending some, some good, really great time with my son and kind of just kind of getting my house in order. And I was looking for a job and I was hired uh, by John. And uh, at the time there was a chef here, Josh Capon. I was working with him and uh, I've been here for almost about eight years now. And just as, you know, once I took the job and, you know, it was kind of funny, <laughs> you know, they were, they had a, they were in the process of opening another restaurant, Bowery Meat Company. And so, uh, once I got here, pretty much left. <laughs> they were really started to, you know, once they, once we established a trust that I was going to be able to uh, handle the restaurant uh, pretty much on my own, you know, they were able to, uh, you know, just apply their focuses otherwhere, uh, elsewhere. And I think... When they refocused on lore, you know, from the other projects that they were doing, and they were able to see what, uh, you know, what was going on, I think uh, that they were very happy. Uh, you know, and I, you know, with the, with just the staff, with the with the product that we we're putting it out, that was pretty much the beginning of the of the positive, the super positive relationship that I have. And, and and at that point, you know, then you're able, you know, you're able to establish that you're serious and you mean business. Then you're able to like, you know, get into the parts of the relationship where you share like, you know, the ups and downs and you know what's happened over the past year, you know, over the past over the past uh, couple of years in the culinary industry. You know, the direction that we're looking for the restaurant to go. And then you're also able to I'm able I'm able to learn and I'm able to get a different perspective on a whole host of different issues or ideas or concepts, you know, from a, you know, from a, you know, a highly seasoned restaurateur that I'm just able to add to, to, to my, to my, to my knowledge, to my, to my, my wealth of knowledge, which is unbelievable. And, you know, he's got, John's been, John's been doing it. John's been doing it all over, uh, you know, Merc Bar, you know, he's been doing, he's been doing so many things, uh, you know, so there's so much knowledge there and, you know, to be able to have access to that is awesome. Yeah, man, you're, you're working with, uh, with one of the best guys in the business, no question about that. So, you know, obviously this past year has been, you know, crazy challenging for the, for everyone and, uh, those of us in the hospitality industry, especially, um, I, I think I read that Lure in New York City stayed open during the pandemic. Is that, is that the case? Uh, we closed. We closed for about two months. We closed uh, in March when everybody closed. We closed for from March to May, about the middle of May, and uh, we reopened. A very small crew. We got the phone call. I think we were, a lot of guys were very happy to get that phone call, and we got right back to it. We started with uh, curbside dining, uh, takeout, delivery, and then we were also uh, we also made um, we did some sort of a, a partnership or deal with the Beyond Burger. And we were making Beyond Burgers for uh, the frontline workers, and we were uh, like maybe, maybe five thousand a day. I'm sorry, five thousand a week. <laughs> five thousand a day. Five thousand a week, and we were having them delivered to the hospital, so the so the frontline workers could, uh, you know, were able to eat and, and keep on doing what they're doing. And uh, it was it was you know definitely hard work because it was only very very limited staff, but it was great. It was great to be you know doing what we do, and I think it was really great for uh, it was great for the guys to be able to get back to work. You know, so they could, so they could, uh, get, you know, keep on get, get their income and take it, you know, keep taking care of their families and taking care of their responsibilities. I think it was great for the community to see that the restaurant was still open, you know, because it's a, it's a real, the, the, the restaurant's a real fixture here uh, in the, in the community. And um, so, yeah, we, we, and so we closed for about two months and then we just kept on going and we, we've been open ever since. And I think that's, it's another testament to John. Because I think, you know, at that point, especially in the early days, you know, in the early days, in that first month, in that first month of, uh, of, of being open and the first couple months of being open, you have to realize like with the rent, with the rent bill coming in and these things, the, you know, the restaurant is operating at a loss, you know, I, you know, but the, the, the ability and the, the desire to be able to keep going, I think is a, is a real testament to the strength of, of, the, of our organization because, um, it's important. It's important for it's important for us. It's important for me. It's important for the guys that I'm working. The, the guys that work for for me in the kitchen, you know that they, you know, we still had a place to go to, and they still had their jobs. And it's important for 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 the business also. It's important for the for the customers to see that, you know, the restaurant is still open. The restaurant is still, you know, trying to, you know, to to push through. 
and um, tons of hard work. I mean, <laughs> it was one of the hardest times working. You know, I think over for the for the benefit of for the benefit of all in the end. You know, really, I, I think the the pandemic, as unfortunate as it was and continues to be in some cases, the the camaraderie and the reverence, I think that. Uh, that restaurants got celebrated in a, in a way that maybe I think a, a different level of appreciation for their the important place in the community. Would you do you feel that, Chef? Absolutely. I think uh, people love to go out to eat. People love to go to their neighborhood restaurant. They love to go to their neighborhood corner coffee store. Um, it's a, it's a it's a real it's a it's a pillar. It's a pillar of uh, it's a pillar of social interaction. Um, for you know, for 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 humans, I think, and I think that you know, I think uh, you know, for for too long, for too long, people have you know looked down on the restaurant industry and and, and you know ridiculed it, and you know, oh, you don't want to be the guy that drops fries, and you know, it's nothing, you know, and I think that I mean, there's a brand new appreciation for it, where when we're not here, you, you know, you really really miss us. You know, and I think that, you know, I think that that awakening uh, is, is beneficial for everybody, you know, and I think that, you know, I'm, I'm very happy that we're back. I know a lot of all of my guys are happy that we're back. We, you know, we're, we're like people who work. It's a, it's a special type of person that works in a restaurant because you're, you're really, you know, it's, it's a, it's, it's kind of selfless. You know, you're really there for the, for the, for the guests. You're really there for the other people. And, uh, you know, I think that the pandemic, although how horrible it is, the good, the, some of the good things that came out of it was this new appreciation for restaurants and restaurant workers and what they mean to you know what they mean to us and what they mean to our you know our communities and our uh, cultures as, as a whole is a it's a new awakening and I'm, and I'm and I'm very grateful for it yeah man well well said I, I couldn't agree with you more so chef some places restaurants that is have that that magic right places like the Odeon I mean 40 years I mean you, you just don't get to be a 40 year old restaurant unless you've captured something pretty special uh, and, you know, pretty much almost everything else that Keith McNally touches. But, you know, John, John McDonald has a similar taste and aesthetic and growing portfolio. But can you describe from your point of view what that elusive ingredient is in a restaurant? Obviously, there's food, there's service and there's decor. But some places, man, just have that something else. What, what, how would you define that? It's, I'm trying, this is one thing I'm really trying to get down to the bottom of myself <laughs> because it really it really works we're looking at what that formula is and it's it's a lot of it's a lot of different things it's, it's the it's the vibe it's the food it's the music you know it's um, you know it's the it's the the atmosphere it's the decor it's the sum of all of those things it's really what makes it it's the sum of those of those really you know so you, you know it's it's, it's it's sometimes it's loud it's fresh it's sexy it's it's nice you know, you can bring your family, uh, you know, you can bring your family. It's a lot of different things. And it's what it's, it's, I think it's definitely a, a winning formula for sure. And I would, you know, add to that maybe analogous to the theater business in that, you know, we have to do it nightly, right? Last night's performance has no bearing on today if you don't do today well. A hundred percent, a hundred percent. And so, and that's where that, that's where that performance comes in. And if you can nail, if you can nail that performance and you, you're going to be judged on those results and you have to be able to nail that and then you can keep on going forward. What you do now sets the precedent for what you can do later. The pandemic gave us a lot of, a lot of time to contemplate, you know, our connectivity to each other, the planet, how we live our lives, you know, operating a seafood focused concept. What issues are you concerned about, you know, the effects on our oceans, overfishing, overfishing, climate change, plastic in the water? What, what issues have your have your attention? The overfishing and the and the ocean pollution is pro- is probably one of the four one of the foremost ones because it's it's really you know and we're really it's really we're really looking for these solutions I'm you know we're looking for solutions and I think restaurants you know especially seafood restaurants are looking for solutions you know and uh, but the the, the the ocean pollution and the overfishing is a really big one because we, you know we're really trying to you know trying to find that symbiotic balance it's all about the balance and if we can find that balance you know I think that we'll be in a good place but uh, you know I think that there's just there's been so much devastation. Station. Really focusing on the the ocean pollution and overfishing, uh, you know, or some of the, you know, you know, I don't know if you've seen this this new Netflix series called uh, I forget what it's called Seascape of, but they really highlighted some of the atrocities that are going on in some of these restaurants. I have seen that. Yeah, it's it's unsettling. 
because I like you, I, I also like swimming in the ocean. Well, I'm so grateful that uh, that Valerie put you uh, on my radar. I'm definitely coming to check you out when uh, when I'm in New York, have a lobster roll or, or something else. But uh, it's really been a pleasure to talk to you, Preston. And thank you so much, man, for your time today. Thank you very much. So here we go. How we move. Ambassador Shabazz is in the house this afternoon. What's happening, Ambassador? How you doing? Well, I'm I'm not in your house. You're in Los Angeles now. That's I'm true. in a I'm in the bluegrass house. <laughs> but well, I am well, I'm here at the corner table. Yeah, good good to have you here. So, uh, Sir Preston Clark, there were bits and pieces of that conversation that uh, that reminded me of you and your family. You know, obviously having lost your dad at, at such a young age. Um, and, you know, the number of kids in the family, but the legacy, um, you know, just the, the, the whole family orientation uh, that, that he spoke to. But uh, just a really, really brilliant uh, chef and talented young man. What, what were your impressions? Well, you, you hit the nail on the head. I The more he spoke, the more I felt a real union um, and that the legacy, not that everybody knows his family's name, but really how the domestic side of the threshold of their house functioned, how his mother and father, what what the siblings were engaged in, what mattered most. I mean, he's a real testament to where hospitality is not just a business or an industry, but it's a way of life, the etiquette the dedication, the commitment, the fact that fewer know his name directly and yet are impacted by his dedication. Um, you you pointed it out. And as, um, you know, the Say It Loud uh, f- founder said that he had been in the restaurant and you don't even realize you're eating his food because what he does is creates that experience for one another. I can't wait to go when I get to New York and it's, I'm sure the menu is going to be superb, but I'm really looking forward to going just to be in the atmosphere based on the nature of the gentleman I heard. You opened by saying, Sir Clark. That's what I felt. The real dignity of great-great-grandparents before him before you knew anyone's name in the clock line, really bequeathing a an integrity to a young brother who continues to serve in a way that includes both his family and the population. You know, it was really, yes, you were, you're correct. I felt a lot of kinship with him, but I would imagine most people would. You know, he's the metronome of character, that we need to be around more, no matter what the industry is. I would imagine that the nature that we just listened to, no matter what industry he chose, you would gravitate to him. Yeah. And, you know, his the correlation between doing high-end cuisine, his background, classical music, the musicianship, it just yes. it all, all kind of goes together for me once you yeah. speak to him and get a real sense of his personality, right? Right. Right. Because it's not just orchestrated. It's just really, it's the food. It was the, the, uh, the early beginnings. It was how that garden was tended to when young, the collaborative journeys that he said that the they would go to the music that they would experience the cities that they would live in the engagements those things also remind me of how my mother sustained and maintained my mother was definitely a uh, an activities guru and exposure was key and so it's evident in who he is and how he does what he does and when he talks about uh, uh, the variables of kinds of music that inspire him it's because I think his breadth is that broad right you know you can move and groove in anything as long as he's around that food or that thing that makes him smile that he has inherited naturally and that we get to be the direct beneficiaries of I also appreciate the service component that engaged him and Lure during the pandemic. And while he may have a real signature for seafood, that he's also concerned about the impact, the pollution on the environment. All of those things make me want to learn more about Chef Clark. Yeah, as you're as you were speaking, I'm just picturing uh, your mom having you and your sisters moving around in lockstep. I can only imagine the order Let me tell you that she maintained. <laughs> we were like ducklings entering a room. Yeah. <laughs> only my mother had a tendency to be late, and you know I'm known mm-hmm. for being absolutely early and uh, a stickler for time. But we would wind yeah. up in a place 
behind her and I was tall when little and so you know I always felt like I could be seen walking in late in lockstep my mother even had clothing that you know we were always kind of like in a die lot hue of whatever her choosing was but you know the thing that made me a jack of all trades of sort and not a pat on the back but you didn't get to do all of it but exposed and when he started to talk about the various ways in which he had been engaged he and his siblings um, mm-hmm. Real intentional. And I think when we talk about legacy, as you concluded the interview with, we should all be mindful of that. We all have legacies. It, it doesn't take someone knowing your name to know that there's something that you stand for, that you're in the world to represent, that there were sacrifices before you. And no matter the hardships or how you interpret them, um, some people think that there's a measure to what is warrants a legacy comparative to someone else and it's not and Mm. no one could have known his father and grandfather could not have known that their grandson would be someone whose name would be so celebrated today in those days it was just a day's work and doing your best at it and representing it as as your father and anyone else in this listening audience um and mother i mean i know both of your parents until they were transitioning and i'm sure in heaven they are still at work making sure that their offspring and that's what I would say to all ancestors we have to engage them they want the best for us all day <laughs> well I, I feel that and I feel their presence so thank you for that before we let you go uh, anything on your radar that uh, you want to share with us well, I have a quite a bit. I don't know if we have enough time because I really was moved in speaking about Chef Clark. But I think I, what I am going to talk about is, it soon in other segments is the large um, growing expat population around the globe. And that includes people of color. Very often in the past, you, it didn't always look like us. We didn't identify with it. But this this journey to be part of the global global family. And it's not just the seniors. It's young folks. You know, there's an average between 25 and and 75 years old, a real navigation of people claiming new locations to not just go and retreat and vacation, but to set up shop. And I look forward to giving more information about some of those significant and unique um, journeys that people have secured over just in this last year. When you talk about the the devastation of the pandemic, but also the innovation, and people just sort of throw threw out the water with the what is it, the baby with the bathwater and started again, rebooted, and found ways to eat well, live well, treat oneself well, being entitled to all of that. So yes, I'm going to come on and talk about real movement around the globe, how people are engaging and downsizing in order to venture into new spaces. Well, that's that's why we call this segment How We Move with Ambassador Shabazz. So we really uh, we look forward to hearing about that uh, and, and engaging in that conversation with you. So, uh, yeah, please do. And in, in the coming weeks, we'll be hearing more. So, Ambassador Shabazz, thank you so much for uh, for joining us today. Great My to pleasure. see you. And uh, you be well. Get out there and get All some right, time. Yeah, right. Have a good one. Corner Table Talk is hosted by Brad Johnson, produced by Brad and Linda Ailes Johnson, associate producer Ariel Mancibo, theme music Life Goes On by Bryce Vine, executive producer Ken Johnson. Find the Corner Table Talk podcast where you get your podcast. Follow, subscribe, rate, and leave a comment. Corner Table Talk is a mean old lion media production.